Revelation. The apocalypse of John, the Revelator. And two weeks ago, we were looking at the first paragraph in the first vision of John in the first chapter. In other words, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And um, as you're turning there, I just remind you that I set this up by having a threefold division. The um, setting of the vision is the first paragraph, verses 9 through 11, and we studied that. This week we're looking at the uh, specifics of the vision in verses 12 to 16. And then the last part of the vision, verses 17 to 20, I've called side effects. Oh, I'm sorry, but that's the best I could do. It started with an S. So, um, I just want to remind us, John has been given a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. And in this first vision, there's no, no vision in the book more important than the first one. This first vision gives us a picture of the glorified, risen, resurrected, all-powerful Christ in heaven amongst his churches, or in the middle, uh, in the middle of his churches, I guess is a better way to say it. And of course, even though that's symbolic, nonetheless, it's a very real representation of what he's doing in reality. In spiritual sense here on earth, in a literal sense in heaven, is that he is the glorified, victorious, risen, resurrected Christ in full glory in heaven amongst his churches doing his work. So this paragraph we come to, verses 12 to 16, gives us the details, the specifics, the, the record that God gave John while he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Sunday, first day of the week, on the island of Patmos. And just remember, it's going to, um, and that's the setting that we discussed last time, it's going to these seven churches, which are in southwest modern-day Turkey, that was called Asia Minor at the time. It was part of the Roman Empire. And you see how they're arranged geographically. The order is such that it's a circular, clockwise route of distributing the letters to the postal districts. These seven churches aren't all the churches in Asia Minor. They're just representative of the seven postal <coughs> districts. And so each one is mentioned in that order. But... I want you to think about the great Christological passages in the New Testament. Like when I say a great Christological passage, I'm talking about like the hymns to Christ. The most glorious text of Scripture we can fathom about the nature, the deity, the uh, um, true essence of who Jesus is. What are those? You know, every, every theologian or most theologians say there's four great Christological passages in the New Testament. The first one is John 1. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 1 through 5. Then the second one is uh, Philippians. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You know, that's where 
is have this mind in you that Christ had, you know, that uh, though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. And the next one is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And then the last one of the four is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. But I've got to humbly submit that the passage we look at today should be the fifth because to quote David Platt, David Platt said this may possibly be the most majestic portrait of Jesus ever penned. <coughs> the other passages may be more doctrinal, they may be more instructive theologically, but this is second to none in picturing the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And of course, it's limited by language. You know, we're such a visual society and culture today, but God in his wisdom gave his word in written form because he wants his Holy Spirit to dictate the visual rather than Hollywood. And um, so he wants his Holy Spirit to take his word and make it visual to you in your mind. And so even though I'm going against that today because I've got a lot of audio visual, I don't want to let that don't let that confuse you. This is just to kind of get you thinking. Um, because it doesn't matter what you see up here. It doesn't matter what I say. All that matters is what's God say. What's in the Word and how does the Holy Spirit take that and interpret it and illuminate it and apply it to your spirit. Um, the record of this vision is given to both the church, big church, Catholic, universal, Catholic meaning universal, the bride of Christ, and the churches, the individual local church bodies. This vision is for the first century churches and the 21st century churches, like Grace Fellowship. This vision is for all people, for all believers, for all time, for all situations. And just as a preface, because we'll get into it, I'll, I'll move kind of quickly. But the vision is what should change us. As we see Christ, we should be changed, right? To see Christ in His glorified state should be what changes us. It should transform us. We should be, as in 1 John says, we become more like Him as we progressively see Him as He is. That's 1 John 3, 2. We've talked about that before. And then as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed into the same image from glory unto glory. So it may seem like this is just facts, but the facts of the vision of Christ should transform us from glory unto glory. So um, let's read the passage. <coughs> Revelation chapter 1, again, the setting, he's on the island of Patmos, in the Spirit, on, on the Lord's day, and he hears behind him a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, telling him to write what you see and send it to the seven churches. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. 
His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burning bronze when it has been made to glow in the heat of a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So here is the specifics of the vision. And... Um, Just to, um, this may be a little bit cheesy, but this is a, a low-budget film. It's on video, on uh, YouTube, I mean, it says free, uh, where Richard Harris, before he died, played John the Revelator on the island of Patmos. And this is, having just read the passage, I hope you will immediately see a lot of what you're about to see is not biblical. But I'm just trying to stoke your imagination for what's going on when he sees Christ. So let's take a quick look. If I can crank this up. Tell me more about Jesus. How he died. special effects there but you get the point that he's um, in the spirit and he's raptured and as Bruce brought up a good point two weeks ago this in the spirit we don't know how much of that was spiritual and how much of that was physical like he could have been literally transported 
into the heavenlies where these perceptions are he audibly heard what he heard and he visually saw what he saw or it could have been all within his spirit we don't know but look at verse 12 the first thing that happens is not what he sees but what he hears he turns to see the voice that was speaking with him and from verse 10 above we see that it was a loud voice and it was like and this is a very key word I told Debbie I said please do not let me lay on to emphasize that over and over again we're talking about descriptors the very limits of language are stretched here in this passage because we're trying to describe our God is trying to give us through language and through John what is indescribable. So what word do we see used over and over again? Like. It's like. So he, he heard a sound like a trumpet. He didn't hear a trumpet. He's trying to describe how clear and crisp and piercing it is. Um, so he hears the sound of trumpet. He turns to see it. And by the way, trumpets always associated with the voice of God, like trumpets used in the Old Testament to call Israel's troops to battle, congregations to worship, associated with his descent on the Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and entering the temple in Psalm 47. So it's a special voice described like being a trumpet. So he turns to see it. And when he turns to see it, he now sees sights. Um, I saw so what is it that he sees? All right, now think about this. Think about that you're given this task. What if you've never heard a symphony orchestra before and you've been assigned to go hear it and then describe that in writing to somebody who's never heard a symphony orchestra before? How are you going to describe that? It's going to be tough, isn't it? All right, now... Now think, you've seen something like the Grand Canyon. How many of y'all have been to the edge of the Grand Canyon? Can you describe that for everybody? I mean, that I mean that picture, huh? Big long hole. <laughs> it's a big long hole. That's right. I mean, it defies description. Uh, what if you? What if you went? to the rings of Saturn and you saw them up close and you were trying to describe that somebody had never been there. Y'all get what I'm trying to say? We're dealing with the incomprehensible. We're dealing with the indescribable. And so again, John is saying he was like what we're about to see. Um, and so what? what's the first thing he sees? He turned and having turned he sees what? What's the first thing? <clears throat> seven gold lampstands. Okay? As we studied before, seven is what? The number of completion signifies a complete set of things. Um, and if we skip ahead and cheat, Jesus gives us the interpretation in verse 20 at the end of this vision. He says that what? The seven lampstands are what? There are the seven churches. So we don't have to wonder what 
We don't have to depend on John Hagee or anybody like that to tell us what these symbols mean. This, this, these, these are nailed down by the Lord Himself. And that is, these are the seven churches. But, remember, and we'll, we'll study this, we'll get to chapters 2 and 3. He's writing to the churches. And these are representative churches. They're representative in that they're seven. They stand for the completion of all churches in Asia Minor. They're also representative of all churches, including Grace Fellowship, including the 21st century. So, when, when we see the seven lampstands, this is reminiscent of the prophet Zechariah. If you remember uh, back two weeks ago, your homework was to read Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, which is called the Little Apocalypse of the Old Testament, the angel that was speaking to Zechariah returned and roused him and said, as a man awakened from his sleep, he said, what do you see? And he said, or I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on top of it and it, it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. And then we know this is referring the, the flame that comes from the lampstands is referring to the Spirit of God because the familiar verse we all know, Zechariah 7, uh, 4, 6 says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by spirit, nor, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So, the seven lampstands represent light bearers. So what is a church? A light bearer. <clears throat> is the church the light? We bear the light. The light is fueled by the fire and the oil of the Holy Spirit. So we're light bearers. We're not the source, we're the bearers. Um, what's the second thing he said? And key word, I saw one like a son of man. Because notice, he says a son of man. Now when Jesus was on earth, his favorite term for himself was what? The son of man. He called himself that over 80 times in the Gospels. Um, it confirms his humanity. It solidifies the fact that he was fully man. But as we certainly see in this vision, he's also fully God. He's full deity. He's full humanity. He's like a son of man. Why is that important? Because John sees this voice coming from a form that looks like what? A man. So, what does that say? Christ is in heaven. He hasn't yielded up his humanity. He is bodily resurrected. He has a body that looks like ours. He didn't say it looks just like ours. He said it's like a son of man. And by the way, notice the distinction. Adam was a man. But the second Adam was a son of man. It, anyway, we won't get into that. But um, what's the next thing you see? Well, it's a robe that goes to the floor. But again, that didn't start with S. So it has to be shroud. Um, and, um, and, and the robe 
has a sash that goes across it, across the chest, and it's golden. So what's that referred to? Six of seven times in the Old Testament, Old Testament Septuagint, the Greek version of Old Testament, the same word is used to refer to the long, floor-length robes of the priests. Although robes were worn by prophets and kings, this term specifically, seven out, six out of seven times, refers to the priest. So, again, Christ is among his lampstands, his churches, so he's acting as what? The chief high priest. This is his priestly garb. Hebrews teaches us Christ is our great high priest. He's become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We have, chapter 4, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, so let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 7 says, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to Him through draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. As Romans 8 says, he's where? At the right hand of God, interceding for us as our great high priest. Next thing, what does he see? Snow. His hair like snow. Well, you know, Old Testament, Proverbs 20 says, the glory of young men is their strength and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Proverbs 16, 31 says, A gray head is a crown of glory. is found in the way of righteousness. Well, you know, a lot of people kid me at work because they know how old I am, and they think I put product on my hair. I do not, I do not dye my hair. I'm just not, I don't have any honor or wisdom yet. I mean, that's the point, is that gray hair, white hair, is the symbol of honor and wisdom. And since I have none, mine hadn't turned yet. Um, but Jesus is infinitely old, right? He existed before creation. He's eternal. He's also infinitely wise. He knows all things. He's omniscient. And he's also infinitely honorable. So what color would his hair be except white? You know? And, and by the way, the word for white is not just a word that describes color, but it indicates brilliance. You know like how the hotter a fire gets, the whiter it gets? This is a white, hot brilliance, a glowing of his head and his hair. This white in radiance, amazing radiance. What's the next thing? <laughs> Searching eyes of fire. His eyes were described like a flame of fire. By the way, you know, most all hero stories have Christological allusions to it because the ultimate superhero is who? Jesus Christ. What's one of the key powers Superman had? X-ray vision. I mean, he can see through anything. This is the ultimate example of X-ray vision here. Uh, pardon, pardon my expression, but I mean, that is Christ sees all. He sees what we think we've hidden. Christ sees it. Christ searches the hearts of every man. There's nothing hidden from him. Um, 
Matthew 10 says, There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Hebrews 4.13 says, All things are open and laid bare to the eyes with whom we have to do. Next thing. Got shining feet. I tried to put shoes there, but it's not. he doesn't have shoes on. His feet, his feet are shining. So I strained to come up with something here. But anyway, their feet that glow like they've been in the furnace, like bronze as it comes right out of the furnace and is glowing. And here, feet always represented judgment. Like in the um, ancient days, kings sat on elevated thrones and people came to them and they never got above their feet because the feet represented their authority over them. And so we're talking about Christ's authority and judgment over all the nations, over all the people. And it's not just simple judgment, but it glows with the heat of purifying fire. What's the next thing? Sound of many waters. How many people have ever stood at the edge of Niagara Falls? I mean, can you even have a conversation? Yeah, I mean, have you ever have you ever been on a rocky coastline when the storm was coming and the waves were crashing on the sea? Uh, the sea was crashing on rocks. You can't hear yourself talk. The sound of many waters, again, it's like the sound of many waters. But it's a descriptor where John is trying to use language to convey to us the majestic quality of his voice. Not only is it piercing and clear and pure like a trumpet, but it's booming and respectful and awesome like the sound of many waters. Um, and this also takes us back to the Old Testament, fulfillment of prophecy by Ezekiel. <coughs> Ezekiel 43 verse 2 says, Behold, the glory of the Glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. All right, talking about prophecy, I want you to think about, I also told you to read Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. We've now covered enough descriptors that I want you to, you turn to Daniel chapter 7 and read along with me if you want to. But in Daniel 7, I'm going to read this and notice how familiar this sounds to what we just studied. Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 9. Daniel 7, verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took up his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Skip down to verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Then skip over Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10, verse 5. Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. I lifted my eyes and looked, 
And behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. Does all that sound familiar? We just read it. So Christ in Revelation is what? Fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. Um, and notice too that in Daniel, he sees a vision of the ancient of days, <coughs> referring to God the Father. And he's the one he's describing as having white hair and glowing eyes and this radiant face. But now, who is like the ancient of days? God the Son. So what's that testifying to? He's fully God. He's fully God. I mean, this is not just like a son of man. This is like a son of God. This is not just man the Son, Jesus. This is God the Son, the Christ. I mean, this is all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, invisible, uh, not invisible, He's visible. This is the eternal Godhead in Christ. It's indescribable. Um, Alright, what's the next thing? Seven stars in His right hand. Alright, he says he's holding seven stars in the right hand. The root word stars is the Greek word aster. It can refer to any heavenly body, but it means a glowing orb. Alright, verse 20 tells us exactly what does that mean. The stars are what? Angels. The seven angels. Okay. This is a controversial point. A lot of controversy about what does that mean. Well, first of all, Jesus says what it means. It means angel. It says the seven stars are the seven angels. Well, but the word angeli can be used to refer to messenger. So it could be a human messenger. Because that does occur in the New Testament. But the word is used 188 times in the New Testament. Out of 188 times, six or seven, depending on one interpretation, it's used as a human messenger. So 96% of the time in the New Testament, angel, angeli means angel, heavenly angel. In the book of Revelation, it's used 70 times. More than any other book. Angels are in Revelation more than any other book. Out of 70 times, you know how many times it refers to a human messenger? Zero. Unless it's this one. So you can see where I'm leaning um, already. Um, and so, I'm sorry, and, and, and Bruce and I have talked about this. This is not simple. I don't want to portray it simple because, and I'm saying this with fear and trembling, because I'm disagreeing with John MacArthur. Oh, no. Mark his name down. <laughs> he says 
This refers to the seven pastors of the churches. I don't think so. To quote John MacArthur, I think your hermeneutic principle is you try the literal interpretation first. Why, why, if that doesn't work, then look for the symbolism. Literal interpretation is these are angels. And you say, well, now wait a minute. We get over in chapters 2 and 3, it's written to the angels. And so it talks about commendation and um, condemnation. Commendation for what the churches do right and condemnation for what they do wrong. <coughs> if they're holy angels, how do they sin? Because it says right to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Pergamum, Thyatira, all. Alright? Well, what if the angels are representative of the churches? Like in the book of Daniel, in chapter 10, you know that Daniel's praying for answers and we find out that Gabriel is dispatched to give him the answer. The, the day he starts praying, Gabriel's dispatched. But he's 21 days late. Why? Because he's held up by the prince of Persia, who is a fallen angel, a demon, over Persia. And then, then we find out that the only way Gabriel got loose was Michael, the archangel, came and helped him. And at the end of chapter 10, Michael is called the prince of Israel. So what do we see there? Angels are assigned over nations. So there's an angel over a nation. Do we have to go through the New Testament for me to prove to you angels are assigned to believers? You know, children and believers have angels assigned to them. You call them guardian angels or whatever you want to call them, but angels are assigned to believers. I think it makes perfect sense that angels are assigned to churches. And so these are the representative angels of the churches. And that uh, Christ holds their representation in his hand. So it, they represent the spirit of the churches. Anyway, okay, I've done it. I've sinned against Johnny Mac. So y'all tell me what y'all think. <laughs> I think he'll never know. <laughs> Why couldn't it be both? Huh? Why can't it be both, both to the pastors and? Well, and but even John MacArthur says <clears throat> the problem he has with being pastors is the New Testament clearly teaches a plurality of pastors, not a single pastor of every church. So that kind of goes against that too, doesn't it? So, but I agree it could be both, and it could be a messenger who's delivering the letters. But anyway, maybe I've spent too much, and I, I, I need to wrap up, I guess, and go to application here. I just think it's very interesting. Um, by the way, though, quick application point. Regardless of what interpretation is true there, we know that there's a spiritual warfare going on, right? And behind the scenes of us as individuals, as families, as churches, as nations, there's a hierarchy of holy angels and a hierarchy of fallen angels at war over the believer, over the family, over the church, over the nation. Like, I fully believe there's an angel over America. And it doesn't take much to believe there's a demon 
over America. And they're at war. And, you know, we struggle. We struggle in that. And so, I just think it's very comforting to see Christ as holding the spirit of the churches in his hand. Is this like the same thing that John experienced or maybe even a greater form than he did during the transfiguration? I think it was very true. He, in fact, the last descriptor that we'll get to at the end of verse 16, I think is obviously reminiscent of him at transfiguration. But the difference is the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a veiled glory. If it wasn't, it killed everybody there. You know, this is John being protected by a revelation of the full glory of Christ. You know, I don't know if it was because it was a spiritual analogy or what, but at the Mount of Transfiguration, if Christ, had, you know, if he'd let go and killed everybody, I mean, it's just, you can't stand it. And, uh, but anyway, let's look last few things. What's next? A sharp two-edged sword. This is not the little Roman machaira, the dagger-like sword that the Romans had. This is a this word is a sharp two-edged broadsword, the big battle sword. And what's it doing? It's coming out of the mouth of Christ. So what's this obviously an allusion to? The word of God, the very voice and words of God that are both offensive and defensive. For the, they're, they're defensive for the believer. They're offensive in terms of conquering temptation and the evil that attacks us. Ephesians 6 says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's an offensive weapon there. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's coming out of the mouth of Christ in power and judgment. And then the last descriptor, which ties to what he said, is, and this is my favorite description of all what we just read. It says, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Have you ever been in a perfect, cloudless day trying to glimpse? glance into the full brightness of the sun at noonday. You can't do it. You can't look at it. And this is the most, I think, powerful descriptor for Christ because the sun is the most powerful thing in our local universe that we can perceive. And so it's overwhelming for us to just look at it and it's 93 million miles away. But it overwhelms us. So, Matthew 17, 2, uh, as he mentioned the transfiguration, says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. But this vision description is even brighter, like the full strength of the sun and its brightness when we can't bear the pain to look into it. Yeah? I don't mean to get ahead of you and everything, but... Um... Is this also alluding to his Godhead too? I thought it is in the sun shining because you can't see the face of God. Well, but but, but I, I do but I do think 
I don't want to imply that I think Christ in heaven has a a non-detailed face. I mean, I think we'll see a a detailed face. It's just that we'll have to be transformed to be able to stand next to it. You know, we'll have to have, like him, a resurrected body to be able to tolerate it. Um, And so, next time we'll look at the paragraph that describes the side effects. What's his response? What happens as a result of this vision? But in summary, wrap up, I want to say, all right, the vision of Christ is like the dawn of recreation. We have, you know, in the beginning, God spoke worlds into being. He spoke the sun to rule the day into existence. And now we see like the dawn of recreation in this vision of Christ that is beyond description. Well, to close, I just want you to stop and think about we're trying to understand what is not understandable. We're trying to comprehend what is incomprehensible. We're trying to do, we're trying to receive descriptions of what is indescribable. This is a vision of the glorified Christ in the midst of his churches. And he's building the church. He's purifying the church. He's empowering the church. He's purging the church. He's instructing the church. He's teaching the church. He's growing the church. Christ is building His bride. And you know, we think He's been away, but He's here. The Spirit of Christ is here among His churches, and He's there among His churches in the heavenlies doing what He's doing for His own church. One thing Aaron in response to this, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, in response to the analogy of Christ as the Son, he said, the reason Christ is like the Son is because you can't look at Him, but without Him you can't see anything. Very, very good. Yeah, that's good. You can't look at Him, but without Him you can't see anything. That's real good. Well, to wrap up, I want to show you all something. Um, I know, again, y'all might think this is cheesy, but this is the best example of a man named, and I know if y'all heard this, y'all gonna sneer, but his name is Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. He was a pastor who lived in the 70s, and this is his attempt to describe the indescribable. You know what I'm about to yeah. He, he's talking about the indescribable. And as he says, I wish I could explain it to you. But listen to this, and this will be our dismissal. Um, if I can crank it up. The Bible says, My king is a king of the Jews, he's a king of Israel, he's a king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know it. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon 
that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king! That's my king! Where can you find that? Amen. And that's all I can add. Is that he's coming. So let's pray.